Thank you, Dan and Ashley. Well, good evening to everyone. Uh, if you would, turn your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 16. We'll be looking at this chapter tonight. That's one of my favorite hymns, Man of Sorrows, Full Atonement Can It Be. Great line and a wonderful song. You cannot muse upon the gospel too much. Uh, God's glory is supremely revealed in the gospel, and it's that glory that changes us. Well, if you would, pray with me, and we'll get into our text tonight. Father, thank you, indeed, that we can sing about full atonement. Uh, salvation is not you meeting us halfway and making salvation possible. It is Jesus Christ coming and Securing salvation, accomplishing salvation through his life, his death, where he took your full-orbed wrath in full and then was buried and was raised on the third day, reversing the verdict for those who would believe. And that's why we sing tonight, and that's why we gather. And Father, we pray today that even as we look at a passage like Jeremiah 16, we could muse upon, reflect upon on that full atonement that the Old Testament is preparing us for in the Son of God. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. In uh, Winston Churchill, maybe you've read uh, some Winston Churchill, there's some wonderful biographies on him. I've read about three biographies on him. One was three-volume work on, on Churchill. Um, many believe that he's the one who saved Western civilization during World War II, but his six-volume history of World War II, he entitled the first volume of that six-volume history, The Gathering Storm, which addressed Europe's years of denial about the Nazi threat. Anybody that has studied World War II, like Carl, knows all about that. Um, and Churchill documented a storm that was gathering in, in full view for all to see, for everyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear. And summarizing his case, Churchill described this volume as the story of how the English-speaking peoples, through their unwisdom, carelessness, and good nature, allowed the wicked speaking of Hitler and Germany, to return and to rearm. Of course, he's referencing World War I there. Well, Dr. Moeller, in his recent book, named after this very volume, The Gathering Storm, raises the question of how Churchill's prophetic warnings about the, the rise of the Nazi threat could be so right and so accurate and yet ignored for so long. So much so that for the most of the 1930s, Churchill was a political outcast in Britain because of what he was warning about, and they, and they ridiculed him. He lost his position uh, in government. Uh, these were what many historians call his wilderness years, when after studying Mein Kampf, he happened to be one of the only ones who actually read... Um, Adolf Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf, and after reading that, he warned. He said, here's what he's planning to do, and no one believed him. He warned of the rise of, of Nazi Germany, 
And yet the political class in Britain and most of Europe were determined not to hear him. Well, before there was Churchill, who warned of a gathering storm and was ignored, there was a prophet. His name was Jeremiah, who also warned of of a gathering storm. And he wasn't being heard either. But unlike those who refused to, to hear Churchill and were therefore guilty of political naivety, those who refusing to hear Jeremiah were actually guilty of apostasy. They were guilty of rebellion against God. Indeed, unlike Europe, who were victims of the gathering storm of Nazi Germany, the people that Jeremiah was speaking to and preaching to were the reason behind the gathering storm of the Babylonians. And it would be through the Babylonians that God would bring judgment on these people. And yet, with all of that, we've seen this throughout this book, God continues to warn them. And and he gives Israel several ways to warn them through his prophets. And we're going to see more of those unique ways tonight in in Jeremiah 16. That brings us into chapter 16. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Now, Jeremiah has already used signs to drive home his prophetic message. Maybe you remember back in chapter 13, he is called to wear and purchase and wear a loincloth that he would walk with and wear and and he would go to the Euphrates River, would have been a several-mile journey in public, and then he was to take that loincloth off and bury it in the cleft of a rock, and then after many days, he would come back, and he would pull out that loincloth, and, and here's what it said, uh, that loincloth was spoiled and good for nothing, which represented Judah. And now we see another sign. His entire life was one big sign of what God was going to do. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, and this is important to see when you study the prophets, they were living sermons. Virtually everything about these writing prophets reveals something about the character and the purposes of God. Um, as, As Philip Ryken Uh, says, and we'll see this in our passage, Jeremiah spent his Friday nights at home alone. There were three things he did not do. Go on dates, send sympathy cards, or sit down to fancy dinners. Or, Or to put it in John Guest's words, he was forbidden to marry, forbidden to mourn, and forbidden to mingle. We see here in the very first part of Jeremiah 16, he was forbidden to marry. Now, this must have been quite difficult for Jeremiah. After all, most men married young in Israel. The average age of marrying age was 18 to 20. And yet, many times, historians tell us that men would get married around 14 or 15 years old. Having 14 or 15-year-old boys, I can't even... God help the wives. God help the wives. So this this command confined him 
to a life that was so abnormal in Israel that there is no Hebrew word for the word bachelor, at least Old Testament Hebrew word. There's no word for bachelor. That's how rare this would have been in Israel. The Old Testament says that that God ordained marriage for human flourishing, to carry out the cultural mandate. Genesis chapter 1, it's it's vital that God's people marry. And and then he he says that children are the fruit of the womb. Uh, God instituted having many children in Israel. And, And in particular, they were essential in order to keep inherited land Uh, in the family, and to preserve the family name from extinction. You see that in Ruth chapter 4. Now, why was Jeremiah commanded not to marry when the institution was blessed by God? That's the question we have to ask. Well, it was a symbolic act. It was a symbolic act. Keep in mind, again, the prophet's entire lives was a living enactment of their message. When God called a man, he was calling him in toto. For example, Hosea, the prophet, endured his wife's harlotry, his wife's unfaithfulness. God would never call someone today to do that, but this was a one of a kind. God was calling the prophet to something to serve as a sign which reflected Israel and their own unfaithfulness. Ezekiel lost his wife, Ezekiel 24, the delight of his eyes at a stroke, and he was not allowed to weep over his wife. And here, Jeremiah is denied a wife altogether. So why would Jeremiah be called to refrain from marriage? Well, by refraining from marriage, Jeremiah would be a constant reminder of the imminence of the nation's destruction. It wasn't a time to enjoy normal family life or to have children. But I would also submit that the Lord is protecting Jeremiah. Uh, The Lord is kind. Even even he, he is accomplishing many things by every command and every providence. These people were about to be exiled. We're going to see some horrific language in this passage tonight that speak of this exile. And it would not make sense for Jeremiah to get into a marital relationship with someone who was going to be brought underneath the judgment of God. Ancient warfare um, was not waged by the rules of the Geneva Convention. And so civilian casualties were off the charts in this kind of siege warfare. And it would be only after the fall of Jerusalem and the loss of many children, as verse 3 tells us here, um, that there would be opportunity for exiles to resume having families. Listen to what Jeremiah 29.4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. That will be the first time we will see this emphasis on 
uh, marriage and children. It would be only after God had brought judgment uh, to these people in exile. That brings us to verse 3. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in the land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. So here he is telling Jeremiah not to lament, not to even go to the funerals, if you, if you will. He's forbidden to mourn. He was forbid, forbidden to marry, now he's forbidden to mourn. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine. And the dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beast of the earth. Again, this passage is written originally for those uh, who are already in exile, but it's also written to us. Again, why do we continue to see this emphasis on judgment? Because these judgments in time and space are pointing us to a grander judgment. It also points us to a more glorious substitutionary judgment of the one who would come so that we could avoid God's wrath uh, in the ultimate last day of judgment. But there is a lot of emphasis on judgment in Scripture because unless you understand the bad news, you can never embrace and love the good news. A lot of preachers today avoid this discussion on judgment. They're afraid people won't come back. Well, uh, that's not new. Uh, Jeremiah certainly uh, wasn't the most popular preacher in the town either. But God keeps Jeremiah from something that most people want in order as well to protect him from something. When, when God does this, and, and I've been musing upon that this week, it might seem like God is being a killjoy. So he, uh, he forbids you from doing something. Maybe it's through providence. It generally, it's not going to be special revelation that he does that unless it's scripture. But uh, through providence, he forbids you from doing something. It's not because he's a killjoy. It's not because he's a holdout. It's not because God needs supplementing. Uh, the Lord is infinite in his holy wisdom and his goodness and he always knows best. And so even for Jeremiah, going without marriage and children, uh, God was sparing him from some massive pain to come. But even that's not the hardest part of the text. Notice in verse 5, For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I've taken away my peace. This is scary language. Uh, from this people, my steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. And so Jeremiah is called to embody the withdrawal of God himself from all loving engagement with his people. In fact, uh, the second part of verse 5 is so shocking. I have taken away my peace. Maybe you know that word, shalom. God has withdrawn his shalom, which is necessary for human flourishing. He's pulled away his shalom. He has pulled away his steadfast love. That, that is the word hesed. Uh, God has withdrawn his hesed and then his mercy, rahaim. Uh, they, these are such important words in the Old Testament that speak about his covenantal commitment. But here, God is withdrawing them. Why? Because these people have refused 
to repent. Um, they love their sin. They love their idols despite the warnings from the true prophet Jeremiah. It's why they love these, these preachers that would preach peace, peace when there is no peace. And so Jeremiah's refusal here to, to sympathize with the bereaved um, mourners embodied, in some sense, God's withdrawal of mercy to the unrepentant. But another reason is given in verse 6. He says, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. And so in the coming judgment, the scale of death, the, the scale of destruction will be so monumental that all the normal cultural comforts of mourning are all going to be abandoned. You know, mourning is a gift. Uh, we, we learned that with the death of my mother. I've, I didn't learn it there, but I, I reflected a lot about that during the death of my mother. The grief was and is deep, but grieving is a gift from God. Um, it, it keeps us as believers tethered to the Lord in dependence, but it's also a way of honoring the ones that we now so deeply miss. In that day, there's not going to be any mourning. And so again, his refusal to participate now in those ceremonies um, when they will be impossible then serves as a sign. Likewise, in verse 8, not only will Jeremiah be prohibited from mourning, he will be prohibited from celebrating. Notice in verse 8, he says, You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So to refuse to join these festivities would further alienate Jeremiah from uh, the people that he was, he was preaching to. And what would be the message? Well, essentially the message is this. The time is coming when all such joy and, and all such feasting would come to an end. Even the important events of life, like weddings and, and funerals and, and, and holidays, would lose all their meaning when society was brought to its knees. I think we have a better idea now having gone through this horrible uh, pandemic. Uh, so many things that we have celebrated in the past. I, I have done funerals uh, over the last year where you only had a few who could even attend because of the, the restrictions. And then weddings, all the restrictions of weddings that have just rained on the bride and groom's uh, parade. Uh, some people even put off their weddings because of the past year and the restrictions that come from that. Well, we have a little glimpse of what they would have experienced, but it pales in comparison to the travesty of the coming judgment on, on Judah. And now the Lord instructs Jeremiah to be prepared for their question that arises out of that. Um, 
why has the Lord decreed such a disaster against us? Notice in verse 10, and when you tell the people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? My goodness, there's your problem right there. They don't mourn over their sin. They have no sense of sorrow. Until a person mourns over his or her sin, there will be no salvation. There certainly won't be any um, repentance. Um, mourning over your sin is a gift. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. He's not saying blessed are those who get depressed. He's saying blessed are those who mourn. To mourn over your sin is a gift. But without repentance, when you are disciplined or judged for your sin, you're always going to be the victim. You'll never see yourself as the culprit. Now, these words here, these questions here, reminds me of the wise words of Jeremiah Burrow, the great Puritan. And he once said in one of his works, Thus a godly man wonders at his cross that it's not more. A wicked man wonders that his cross is so much. Let me repeat that and try to explain what he means. A godly man, a godly woman, wonders at his cross, at her cross, that it's not more. That is, godly people perceive, I deserve more discipline than I actually received. I deserve more based on my sin. That's a godly person. A wicked man, a wicked person wonders that his cross is so much. And that's where Judah was. And again, this is, a, this is not your typical chapter that you read for devotional life, right? Uh, but when you, when you look at Judah, oftentimes we're looking in the mirror, aren't we? And we're seeing what God judges. That's why reading these kind of passages are so important. How many times have I played the victim when actually I was the culprit? And that's where they are. And, and the Lord's reply is clear and to the point. Notice in verse 11, he says, Then you say to them, when they... Raise this objection. Here's what you say to them, Jeremiah. Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have kept my law. Now, at this point, it appears that they're going to be judged for their father's sins not so fast. And because you have done worse than your father's. They were bad enough. You're worse than they were. The children uh, tend to pick up their father's and their mother's sins, but they take it to a new level generally. Boy, that's a, 
a sobering thought for parents, isn't it? They'll take their parents' sins and the patterns that they have seen modeled for them, and they will take it to the next level apart from repentance, apart from conversion. We are birthing little atoms in the world. Remember that. Little atoms who need to come to know in repentance and faith the last Adam, the one who came as Savior. If not, all you're reproducing is yourself on steroids. And that's exactly what we see here. He says, you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Now, much has been said about justice these days. Uh, let me recommend a book. I cannot think of the name of it right now. I'm reading it. It is amazing. It's by a guy named Thaddeus Williams, where he's critiquing the whole social justice movement today. It's such a theological, but it's so clear. It's well-balanced. But in this book, he argues that true justice begins with treating God justly. And so he's critiquing this, this, this movement that is, that is essentially um, being driven by the critical race theories of our day. And he says the problem, first and foremost, with this movement is they don't treat God justly. There are things that they are aspiring to that are more important to them God, than God alone. And so here... As Derek Kidner says, the first commandment, which is thou shalt have no other gods before me, was the last to be considered for them. That was their problem. Now notice in verse 13, therefore, therefore, because of your sin, because of your rebellious hearts, therefore, I, this is horrifying language, I will hurl you out of this land. I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night. You want to serve other gods? I will, I will give you over to your desires. I'm going to put you in a land that's filled with idolatry, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor." This is the promise of exile. As I said uh, already, Jeremiah's, the people of the day were already experiencing famine. Famine was kind of like stage one of what would ultimately be exile. We hear exile, but imagine, ima for us, so it's, Babylon was some 500 miles away. Imagine um, an army coming in and dividing us and taking us 500 miles away from, from Louisville, Kentucky. And, and not only that, it's another country, uh, another government, uh, another religion. It, it would have been horrifying, and God is going to hurl them out of the land. This is a picture of exile. And that brings us to one of the most unexpected and remarkable therefores in all of Scripture. I, I've looked at this word. I've, I've pondered this um, this week. 
Uh, I still can't make sense of this word in verse 14, but it just shows you the grace of God in the midst of the judgment. He says, I'm going to hurl you out of the land. Therefore, verse 14, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The Exodus, as you know, was the great saving event. That was the, that was the event that Israel pondered uh, as they mused upon God's greatness, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, His power, His wisdom. He said, but there's going to come a day when uh, you won't even be talking about the Exodus. He says, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Right in the midst of this passage on judgment, being hurled out of the land, out, right out of the blue, God says, therefore, there's coming a day where I'm going to bring you back. And the deliverance is going to be so powerful and remarkable and glorious, you won't even think about the exodus. It almost doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, the word therefore, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to hurl you out of the land, therefore the days are coming when I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be glorious. But that shows you how beautiful and glorious grace is. It can't be explained. It's, it's, a, it's a work of God's sovereignty and His goodness and His commitment to His promises. He says, you're going to be brought out of the north country and out of all the countries where you've been driven, and I will bring you back to your land that I gave to your father. So this is a promise of homecoming. It's a, it's a return from exile, and it is going to be so glorious that they're not even going to think on the, the exodus. They'll be talking about this particular day. Of course, the return from Babylon was remarkable. Um, 50,000 Jews. They, they would be in um, exile for 70 years. In fact, Jeremiah 25 prophesies that. In Jeremiah 25, he prophesies you, you're going to be in the land for, 20, uh, for 70 years. It's an interesting study. We don't have time for it. But they forsook the Sabbath on the land for some 500 years. All right? And if you divide... Um, 490 into seven, you get 70 years. Uh, it, it is a remarkable thing that they spent 70 years. I don't think that it's a, an arbitrary number. I believe God was getting his Sabbath years back when they, they decided to ignore the Sabbath rules on the land. And God said, okay, I'll get my 70 back. The balloon payment came due. But Jeremiah prophesied that in Jeremiah 25. And that's what's interesting, um, that when they come back in the Bab from Babylon, they've been there for, some, for 70 years. And, and yet, we know, as remarkable as that return was, it in many ways was unremarkable. I mean, the, the elders came back, and we see this in Haggai, see it in Zechariah. Uh, the elders remember the glory of the old temple, and they realize the glory has not re re uh, returned, and they mourn. They mourn over the, the fact that God's glory has not returned 
to the temple. And, and on this Palm Sunday, it's important for us to remember that that, that return from exile as well as the exodus out of Egypt were all just sign pointers. They were just types preparing us for the greater exodus, the greater return from exodus. So on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, what is he coming to do? He's coming to secure the ultimate exodus by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. His resurrection will be the ultimate exodus from exile, the exile of God forsakenness. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the great exile that the substitute is experiencing for us. And then his resurrection from the grave is the glorious exodus that makes us forget the return from Babylon and even the exodus out of Egypt. Interestingly, um, Ezra picks that up. Listen to these words from Ezra, uh, verse 1, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus was a pagan, but he was being used by God's, in God's purposes, so much so that Isaiah calls him an anointed one, Messiah. He's a Messiah figure, even, even though he's a pagan. And, and so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says the Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And so all of these 50,000 Jews led by Zerubbabel and, and Joshua the high priest, they, they, they come back into the land, but it proved to be ineffectual. Again, why is it ineffectual? It's preparing us for the one who will come. But yet you do see um, this kingdom that the one who will come that we celebrate today, you know, uh, on this Palm Sunday, um, you, you do see that kingdom he will secure and inaugurate approximated when they come back into the land. So think about this. You have uh, a prophet, actually two, Haggai and Zechariah. You have a priest, Joshua. In fact, Joshua the priest uh, was given a crown, and he was crowned in Zechariah 6, which, which indicated that he was pointing to one who would be both a priest and a king, and then you have Zerubbabel, who kind of served as a neo-king from the tribe of Judah. They're heading, they are leading the people of God to rebuild the temple. If you can't see the type in that, it's quite remarkable. But the rebuilding of the temple was also important because, as Malachi 3 tells us, the Messiah would come to the temple. When the Messiah would come, he would come to his temple and that's why we see in Luke, Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple, right? They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so all of this is being prophesied. It's pretty remarkable. But until that day, judgment on their covenant breaking. So back to reality. Verse 16, behold... I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. 
So he gives us this, this is why it's hard to read. Um, <laughs> right in this middle of this chapter on judgment, he, he gives us this glorious picture of what he's going to do, and now he's back to judgment. Who are the fishers? It's Babylon. I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Yes, a couple of days ago, I've, we've been having to teach on Zoom. And, and of course, I'm never crass or off color in the classroom. Uh, but there's some things that you say in the context of a classroom that could be taken out of context. Um, and, I, and I said to the students, I said, aren't you looking forward to the day uh, we don't have to have everything recorded on Zoom? Uh, I am. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that day. So there are some things I just shut down Zoom that I say to the students that I wouldn't say on Zoom. Because again, you can take a clip out of context and the next thing you know, I'm looking for a job. Um, but then it occurred to me, before the Lord, everything's on Zoom, right? Um, everything. He hears everything. Uh, so you, you may be in the silence of your, of your privacy of your home, uh, but, but here's, what, here's what God is saying to them. He says, my eyes are on all your ways. There's nothing hidden from me, nor is your iniquity concealed from my eyes. Humans may not know, but I know. Humans can't bring the judgment that I'm going to bring. And I will doubly repay your iniquity and your sin because you have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. The failure, the refusal to worship God as God is the highest of sins and so it deserves double repayment. Now, that's a metaphor for proportionality. In other words, all sin, all judgment is proportionate to the crime. That's why there's no one in hell who's a, who's a victim. Every, there's no victims in hell. All judgment is proportionate to the crime. That's what he means here when he talks about this double payment. And Israel bore his name, Israel lived in his land, and so it was doubly atrocious that they, did, they failed to worship him. And so like fishermen gathering fish with their net, he was going to bring in Babylon to catch them. But again, interspersed in such a dark text, we see the glory of God, we see the good news of the gospel. That's how we close here. I love how this chapter ends. This chapter ends with an affirmation of God, his salvation, and also in the midst of the great sins of Judah. Notice in verse 19, Jeremiah breaks out in worship. He says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. What is the day of trouble he's referring to? The coming judgment. You don't need a refuge unless... There's a day of trouble. How many times do we see the promise of God being our refuge? We're in a day of trouble, aren't we? Uh, it's, so, it's no less true for us. For every believer here, uh, we have a refuge. That's why we really don't need to be anxious. We really don't need to be discouraged. 
uh, we have a true refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come. Now think about this. The nations are who are going to judge Israel. But he says, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. So he promised salvation for Israel in verses 14 to 16. And now he is closing out this chapter by promising salvation for the nations, which is quite remarkable because we know that the nations will be saved through the seed of Abraham, right? And he says, in that day, uh, uh, they will say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. And so the picture of the nations coming to Judah at some future point you see this in, in Isaiah 2. You see it in Micah chapter 4. We recognize from Ephesians that it is fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, Galatians 3.16, breaking down the division between Jews and Gentiles. He himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, thus reconciling them to, to God and to each other. Um, but this would come as the nations confess and forsake their idolatry. You cannot come to the Lord on your terms. You have to come on his terms. He's the king. They will describe these idols in that day. Who's he referring to? You and I. We're, we're the Gentile nations. As lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Only those who can see their idols for that can be saved in that day. Indeed, he says, they are not gods. That's what the Gentile who are converted will say. They are not gods. And in recognizing the supremacy of the Lord, they'll behold his power, verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once, I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh, the Lord. And so the first sin is believing, this is the first commandment, that the gods, the false gods, have viability. That's the first sin. That is our first problem, all right? The second sin is the fruit of the first. It is attributing power and value to the false gods that don't actually have power, right? And actually don't have value, and so failing to recognize God's supremacy. That's idolatry. That is our fundamental problem. And it's all, this is always the order. As Stephen Smith has written, when we replace God's prominence in our lives, and that is our fundamental problem, when we replace God's prominence in our lives, we will doubt his dominance. When we, when we replace his prominence, we will doubt his dominance. In other words, if something else replaces him as the center of our worship, and all of us are worshiping something ultimate, something replaces him as the center of our worship, our affection, our love, our emotion, then ultimately we will doubt whether he's strong enough to be the Lord. 
That's the problem with idolatry. But in the day of salvation, now this is true of every person who is converted. That's why this last couple of verses are so important for understanding. uh, it, It helps us understand conversion. In the day of salvation, we... We behold by the Spirit the glory and the power and the majesty of the Lord, and it sets us free from our idols. They no longer have a hold on us, and that's why we're able to to come to the Lord. And that's what Paul was praying when he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened in order to know the power, okay, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power For those who believe, that power, which is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And now, beholding that power, we see the idols as what they are. Lies, worthless things, not God's. So, I want to close here with just a few. And I wrote these down this week. This is not exhaustive. But a few of these gods, worthless things that we tend to gravitate to, all right? Power idolatry. Approval idolatry. That's a big one, isn't it? Approval idolatry. Willing to compromise so that we can receive other people's approval. Comfort idolatry. Control idolatry. Helping idolatry. You, you, you're, you're so enslaved to wanting to be needed. Helping idolatry. Dependence idolatry. Independence idolatry. Work idolatry. Achievement idolatry. Materialism idolatry. Or material security. Financial security idolatry. Religion idolatry. Individual person idolatry, irreligion idolatry, ethnicity idolatry, family idolatry, relationship idolatry. The anecdote we see here, the only anecdote anecdote is beholding the supremacy of God, and as we know from the New Testament, as revealed in the person of his son, who would bring about this grand and glorious end-time exodus. And in beholding the glory of his forgiveness, the glory of his love, the glory of his wisdom, the glory of his power, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his sovereign rule, the glory of his promises, this glory that we behold, here it is, progressively turns our hearts away from our idols and our individual commitments to our own glory, to live for the one we were created for in his glory. I think that's what you see in this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Jeremiah 16. Uh, Lord, it's a dark text, but by your mercy and grace interspersed in this dark text is glory and gospel and hope, and salvation. And Father, I just pray that those truths would permeate our heart and continue to transform our former idolatrous hearts into hearts that behold your supremacy and your greatness and your power.
supremely revealed in the Son of God, the Messiah, the one that Jeremiah calls the branch of David. We ask these things in in the name of our Christ. Amen.